How you still need to believe it was for the love and not its opposite. For to love is to hold your heart outside your body and inside another. The red echo pulsing through your marrow to sound what cannot be heard. You pulled through the bones by his desire. Your clay self molded into the fitted shape of his desires. This is how we make the things our children inherit. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Peace, everyone. Welcome to Haymarket Poetry Presents. We are here for an incredible evening of celebration. Um, We get to celebrate the debut full-length collection, The Body Family, by the brilliant and talented Hope Wabuki. Hope will be joined by two additional incredible, brilliant, beautiful readers as well, um, Safia Elhilo and Latin Osman. Um, We're incredibly excited to have all of these dynamic writers and conversations, um, both in terms of, you know, just Black femme energy of the diaspora. We are giving you light. We are giving you love. We are giving you provocation, but we are also holding you close. I want to take a quick moment to send um, solidarity and light to all of those affected by the events in New York um, earlier today. And so we're hoping that we can provide you, even temporary, we can provide you with a space of um, healing and a good balm to get you through these dark times. Um, but we're so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Hope's book. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our two guest poets, and then we're going to get into this love. Um, if you're in the chat, make sure that you're utilizing the chat. We are not just golf clapping up in here. I know we're virtual. I know we are spread out across the country, across the world. Um, but it's incredibly important that especially in these times, we um, fill up the space with presence so that we can be able to reach out and connect with one another. Um, and so without further ado, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Hope's book, The Body Family, which is a song of memory and revelation. It is the sublime unearthing of what has been hidden by silence and erasure. This lyrical and imagistic poetry collection tells the story of a family's journey to flee the murderous reign of Uganda's Idi Amin, only to land in a racist American landscape. Wabuki excavates personal and ancestral history to bring these poems to wrenching life, articulating what it means to be a black girl becoming a black woman while navigating a diaspora haunted by British colonization and American enslavement. It is available today because happy pub day to the illustrious hope. Um, And so you'll be able to purchase those copies throughout the event. Please do so. 
And then in terms of our speakers, a little bit about Hope. This person, um, Hope Obuki, is a Ugandan-American poet, essayist, and writer, also an educator, also a fierce mom, also an incredible literary citizen. She is the author of the forthcoming memoir, Please Don't Kill My Black Son, Please. Hope is published in The Guardian, The Root, Los Angeles Review of Books, and NPR, among others. She is an assistant professor of English and creative writing at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln and a founding board member and former media and communications director for the Cambilio Center of African American Fiction. Safia Elhilo is the author of The January Children, one of my favorite collections, that was published on the University of Nebraska Press in 2017. Also the author of Girls That Never Die from One World, Random House this year, which just recently came out. So if you haven't checked out any of those readings that Safia has been doing, get your life right, go visit the interwebs, do it today. She also has a forthcoming novel in verse, Make Me a World from Random House, um, that will also be forthcoming in 2021. Um, she's the co-editor of our anthology, one of our proud installations, Halal If You Hear Me, that was published in 2019. And she is curr- currently finishing up her Wallace Stegner Fellowship in Poetry at Stanford University. Lethan Osman is the author of Exiles of Eaton that was published in 2019 and winner of the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, along with the Kitchen Dwellers Testimony in 2015 that was the winner of the Silliman Prize. Lethan is a 2021 Whiting Award winner. She has received, I'm sorry, correct that, she has earned fellowships from the Lennon Foundation, Kaveh Kanem, the Missioner Center, and the Fine Arts Work Center. Again, it's my extreme pleasure and honor to welcome these incredible poets. And so let's just show them all the love. So, Safia, go ahead and start us off. Thank you, Erica. Um, Hope, it's such an honor to be here celebrating you. This first poem is called From My Friends in Reply to a Question, and it's after a poem by David Ignatow. I'm okay, and of course I'm not, but I go through the motions. I wake up to the alarm's howl, even when the word in my body is no. I dress in livid colors. I blacken the hairs of each eyebrow. I bake and braise and pickle. I write and read and lose hours to the blur of the television. I sit for hours in the bath, my skin puckering. I don't know if I'll ever go home again. I don't know who I've seen for the last time. The Arabic comes back to me in streaks of paint, verb forms and vocabularies I may never again have occasion to use. My days smudge into one another, and it's not that I am afraid. It's as if I am watching it all happen below. And I am somewhere above the room, wondering if the rice is burning. I am somewhere above the room, watching my new aches, watching the news as if I am reading it in a novel. I look up the names of people I knew in childhood, learn their new and angular faces, their faraway lives. My grandfather pixelates into a smile, and I work my creaking muscles to replicate it. I do not ask if we will ever meet again. I do not ask him to read to me or for anything that will make me long. I dull it with sugar and oil, with cooking shows, with sleep. I sleep 12 hours each night, and in my dreams I am fleeing a war. In my dreams I am touching the faces of my friends. We are each one of us touching, and even in the dream we are afraid. Orpheus. Mold blooms on the yogurt, 
furring the edges in ancient colors. My body is something I have worn for other people. Even five years ago, I would not recognize myself today. Married, gallon bags of animal bone and corn cobs in the freezer to boil for stock. I am far away from the cities of my girlhood, cool concrete of their stairwells. The new therapist wants a list of compliments I'd give myself on behalf of those who love me. And all I can come up with is resourceful. For a time, I believed myself in love with Orpheus, which only meant I loved what I could make if I were free from what happened to my body. That man who would never touch me, kept distant and without danger by the barriers of fiction, when I believed the work would save me. I have no real use now for those Greek myths. They're dead girls, women raped by men and animals. Today, the door is locked. Today, nobody is outside. Muscle cramping mid-lap in the dark blue water. Now I embroider flowers in dim colors in my new country of flowers. Clumsy stitches through the stencil of an orchid. Remembering my younger mouth pressed to a flute, unable to release the breath. I'd liked that he was a musician, fingers long as spring onions. As a child, I ruined my sweaters. The sleeves tugged down to cover my hand before touching any doorknob or handling coins. Teenaged, loitering, urgently lonely. The cotton t-shirts curling at their sliced hems. Now I am thick-fingered and practical as my mother and her mother. Smell of bleach against ceramic. Gone is Ladin's humid little apartment. Violent stain on the bathroom tile. A bottle of crimson nail polish shattered long ago and leaving streaks like blood. Her dirty living room where I slept for nights on end, though my own apartment was nearby, cleaner. I can't imagine them. The poems that softened the hearts of gods. The poems that changed anything. That first cigarette I accepted. Metal of the fire escape against my bare legs where she allowed me to tell the entire story without using the real words, the night cooling and gathered close, the way nothing ever feels truly clean in summer. And all I know about Eurydice is that she died. My every other fact about her is about him. Modern Sudanese Poetry. My husband works his fingers into the knot muscled against my spine and my dead stay dead. My hair a knotted cursive language, my ligature, my grief barely literate, my amulets knotted around my neck and wrists, my language, my language, cursive and silent, glottal and knotted and scarring the cheeks of my dead, adorning the hair of my dead, tallow in their braided hair. I read the books in translation. Where is the poem? And circle every word I know. Acacia, lupin sandalwood and ash they ululate my dead they squat like brides over clay pots of smoke a yoke suspended in each open eye and some in truth are not dead my dead and i am who was lost who is not counted among the living the poem is not owed me i was wed in all the colors of my dead the reddening the borrowed gold i wrote the poem in translation i wrote the poem in the loophole I wrote the poem in cursive. I snarled it. I picked apart the threads and wove a shroud. I was wed in it. I unfastened. I broke my fast with apricots, furred like the ears of my dead. I looked laterally for ancestors. I descended left and right. I read the book in Arabic. 
knew each letter and its sound, and did not recognize the words for tallow, for ululate, my dead, my languages, my ligatures, smoke in my loosened hair. Final Weeks, 1990. Hours before, the night outside is black as my grandmother's hair, its newborn moon in Sagittarius. And in the Maryland house, my mother is 23 behind a winning hand of cards as the water darkens the length of her skirt. December now and friends still call her El Arus, the bride, 11 months married and the shock of it not yet settled behind her eyes. Morning and the baby has not come. Milky winter sun in Sagittarius. I should mention there was a husband, 27. I can hardly imagine it, a boy that age, my father. I cannot picture him in the room, though his work for years to come will absorb him into countries that smell of blood. Maybe he is in the room now, not yet a specter. I sketch him in, but do not know where to put him. Maybe in the corner, back rigid against the white wall. I cannot imagine them ever touching. I smudge him out, correct the still wet scene. He is outside, long limbed in a hard plastic chair. My mother called him Jack, and this is my only proof they were in love. My mother is almost my mother now, darker color of the noontime sun. In the waiting room, I should also place my grandparents, elegant in that old overformal way of immigrants. My grandfather's shirt never without a collar, lush neatness of the Afro against his head. My grandmother could pass for a film star, hair black and feathered down her back, any suggestion of curl or coil since burnt away and set every morning in hot rollers, her eyebrows tattooed as they have been all my life, blue-black parentheses, both of them older than the independent state of the Sudan, my grandmother 13 years its senior, my grandfather a January child of unknown birthday, though the colonial offices recorded as 26 years before his country is born. They are placid companions, their courtship cooled amicably into a sort of siblinghood, and I have never seen them touch, so I cannot imagine it now. He paces the cool length of the hallway. One hour and 39 minutes past noon, that final diluvian push and I am outside, full head of wet hair, pomegranate creature calling that little animal sound, pronounced a girl and named for a dead great aunt, the birth certificate dated and signed in ink. Back home, I would have been known by my first two names, mine and my father's, Safia Yagub, the surname rarely used. But in the new country, the paper demands a patronym. Anglicized, the L becomes a looser L. Hello, meaning sweet. Strange, unserious alonym of that first great-grandfather. And crowded together on a single line, marked first name, our names. Mine and his, Safia Yagu. Little echo of that forgotten epithet, that once loved man, of Jack. And though I am not named from my mother, we match. Safa, noun form of my adjective, our shared first syllable, closest I have ever seen them, him and her, almost touching. How to say, after Aga Shahid Ali. In the divorce, I separate to two piles, books, English, love songs, Arabic, my angers, my schooling, my long repeating name, English, English, Arabic. I am someone's daughter, but I am American born. 
It shows in my short memory, my ahistoric glamour, my clumsy tongue when I forget the word for. In Arabic, I sleep unbroken dark hours on airplanes home and dream I've missed my connecting flight. I dream a new and fluent mouth full of gauzy swaths of Arabic. I dream my alternate selves, each with a face borrowed from photographs of the girl who became my grandmother, brows and body rounded and cursive like Arabic, but wake to the usual borderlands. I crowd shining slivers of English to my mouth. Iris, crocus, inlet, heron. How dare I love a word without knowing it in Arabic? And what even is translation, is immigration, without irony. Safia means pure. All my life it's been true, even in my clouded Arabic. Um, and then this is another little huzzle called arm's length. Though to a child of fleeing people, my husband has never held his name and body at arm's length at an airport. We looked at maps, taking turns with the middle seat, summered in old cities, held hands at the airport. In that famous city of romance, we folded in with the other immigrants, spiced food and blue smoke, shisha perfume in the air. Portmanteau is a game we played in transit, the mischief found in Christopher. I left loving that old city, even when I was searched at the airport. When we were first married, he would dream of all the places we might live, security arriving again after I'd boarded to remove me from the airplane for a third search, my clothes scattered around the jet bridge, shame swelling in my throat. It's a joke by now, the Muslim at the airport. All the places we might live, healthcare and a metro, do we speak the language, cost of renting an apartment, its proximity to an airport. Twice, already pregnant, my mother on a long ago flight, turbulence and nausea in return for passports for her children our ease in every airport, while she stayed behind to be searched, headscarf and the wrong papers. My brother and I, American and killing time, eating fast food at the airport. After that election, after each new video where we die, we consider our ancestral work of leaving, bored of destinations like a menu at the airport. He has his heart set on it, that city, my husband, it's long afternoon. Sunset two hours before midnight, and I can't. It was one time, but still, the airport. They hate Muslims in that country, I eventually say. My exalted passport, just paper, ugly shade of blue, and everywhere in the world. The airport, the place where it is most plainly said, but not the only. So where is there for us to go, for me and mine? Name I cannot help, and cannot hide what it reports. And now it feels so far away, that place, that portal. I surprise myself by longing. The world, everyone, everything I love, kept from me on the other side of an airport. Ode to Gossips. I was mothered by lonely women, some of them wives, some of them with plumes of smoke for husbands, all lonely, smelling of onions and milk, all mothers, some of them to children, some to old names, phantom girls acting out a life only half. Oh, sorry. Phantom girls acting out a life only half a life away. Instead, they clatter copper, copper kitchenware with their bangles pushed up the arm, their fingernails rusted with henna, and kneading raw lamb with salt, 
with coriander. They take weak tea, upper lip sweating in the steam, hair unwound against the nape, my deities, each one, each sandal slapping against each stone heel, their funk of sandalwood and oud. I worship the bright chiffon spun about each head, the coffee in the dowry china, the butter biscuits on a painted plate, crumbs suspended in eggshell demitas when they begin. I heard, people are saying, I saw it with my own eyes, Redacted's daughter, a scandal. She was wearing Redacted and not wearing Redacted. Can you imagine? A shame, a shame. And then uh, this is my last poem um, called Ode to My Homegirls, and it's after Matthew Olsman. Ode to My Homegirls. Smelling of orange rind, of cardamom, most beautiful girls in the world. Wake up, bitch, we're getting waffles. You can keep crying, but you're going out. My marriages, my alibis, my bright and hearty stalks of protea. And all I know of love I learned at 13, dialing Besma's home phone by heart to three-way call whatever boy, so that weeks later when the phone bill came, only Besma's familiar number beside the timestamp, clearing my name. Vesma herself staying awake for hours to hang up the phone after. You who send pictures of your rashes to the group text and long voice notes from the bathtub, your laughter echoing against the tiles. You who scatter the world's map, piling into cheap buses and budget airlines, four of us asleep in my dorm bed, six of us overflowing my studio apartment, false lashes for weeks after like commas in my every pillowcase. You clog my toilet and admit it. You text me screenshots from the Gucci fashion show, getting rich so I can get you this. And when I lived alone and that man followed me, one night home from the sixth train, up Lexington and into the hallway, tried for hours to break open my front door. You took turns from all your cities and stayed overnight with me on the phone for three days, snoring and murmuring in your sleep. Hope, uh, congratulations on this stunning book and this stunning achievement. Um, I'm so, so happy to get to be part of celebrating you. I hope you feel so celebrated and so proud of uh, just this wonderful, beautiful book that you've made. Um, I love this book so much and I'm so happy for you. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives by Donna Murch. Drawing its title from one of America's foremost revolutionaries, this collection of thought-provoking essays by award-winning Black Panther Party scholar Donna Murch explores how social protest is challenging our current system of state violence and mass incarceration, exploring how a youth-led political movement has emerged in recent years to challenge the bipartisan consensus on punishment and looking to the future through a redistributive queer and feminist lens. As Kianga Yamada-Taylor puts it, Donna Murch is one of the sharpest, most incisive, and elegant writers on racism, radicalism, and struggle today. This is a smart and sophisticated book that should be read and studied by everyone in search of answers to the profound crises that continue to confront this country. Find Asada Taught Me at haymarketbooks.org. Y'all, uh, please give it up for Safia in the chat. 
give it up in your room where you are. We are giving all the applause, all the flowers. What? Uh, oh, to my homegirls. Like I just, I feel swaddled in like flowers and like warm things and good tea and all kinds of good shenanigans that we kick off with our homegirls. So thank you so much for that incredible poem. Oh. Can y'all take that in for a second? Can y'all take that in for a second? Are y'all ready for the next poet? I think you should be. If you're not, get ready, okay? Because we have on deck um, the gorgeous Lethan Osman, who's going to bless us with her words as well, again, in celebration of Hope's incredible book. Um, So show your love, keep being engaged, and Lethan, I'll kick it off to you. Thank you. Safia, thank you for that incredible reading. I just, I always appreciate all the worlds that I can walk in and get lost in some familiar, some not familiar um, and all the assumptions that I can't make as I listen to you. So uh, just congratulations on all your new work. I'm so excited for your forthcoming works as well. Um, Hope, I'm so excited to celebrate you. I've admired you for so long. You're such a hero um, in the literary community and have been for so long. And, um, I'm just surprised and pleased to be here with you. I'll try to make a more concentrated note about you and your book toward the end, Um, but I'll just get into this. Okay. Um, Intangible quality. We are not always yoke. Sometimes we are the yellowed grease on the side of the skillet running headlong into flame. I enjoy watching men's eyes eat women like breakfast. There is so much that passes between thigh meets chair and shine in pupil. Is there anything that keeps what it takes? I thought it was the heart. I hope it's not the earth the grain it issues, shoots touch skin and say, get away from here. Is there any veil except time? One of these days I'll take the light out of my eyes, leave hollow globes. I can make my voice bird song in a graveyard or hair between floorboards, hair mingled with carpet scalp, hair in the space between mirror and frame, see me, try to grasp me. I make searching fingers blister a man's mind. Um, I'm like surprising myself. I'll read a couple of uh, new poems as I thought about um, Hope's work and the sense of reality, but also optimism, which is so perfect for this time, and of the sequencing and just different ideas of heat and cooling down, which is something I tend to look for in poems anyway. And so I try to to pick some poems that maybe do that a little and eventually cool down in recognition of all the ways that hope is working inside of those image systems and that um, heritage of storytelling. Um, and so, yeah, I've been writing new poems from the perspective of the sun, 
um, I don't really know what there is to to say that's meaningful. It's um, kind of all over the place project for me in part because so much of my obsession with images has to do with what the light touches and what the light does not touch and what it causes to glimmer. And so I was like, why not just write from one of the sources? So this is um, one of the, the first times Sun um, speaks um, and announces itself, herself. Um, sun to void. I cannot help my gaze and did not choose this. I was a flurry of atoms. I was a disassembled spark. I desired impression. I desired progeny. Then the Lord said unto me, suppose a daughter. Does it please you? Immensely immeasurably, but I was not myself a daughter, could be no mother of one or three. So I was given all daughters, all blooms, all fruits. At first I was a lamp craned above a clovered garden. The roots, they suckled the dirt and lashed it and crawled for eons. Then they were standing upright all over the earth. My gaze horizoned, my origination fogged, my eyes searched forever, my gaze compassing. I asked God to turn me away. Give me eyelids, give me veil, give me some cover like every other God, please. Please ease me, God until God grew weary of my weary and fixed for me an access. God said, wait, repeated, wait. I gave you daughters on daughters. Are you not pleased? I do not know pleasure. I know not what I become. God said, your touch is incomprehensible. Now you know me. No fathom between us. All men turn their faces to you, but verily they turn away. They tarry home. Um, and so... Part of thinking about the sun and adoration for it and all that it touches and um, later there are times and locations, um, but this is the one of the first in the, the sequence of uh, sort of more the witness of human tragedy and the scale of it. Um, sun to God. The children walked. Then they began to run. Why are we running, one asked. No one knew. They ran faster. They began laughing. Why are we laughing? Not one knew. They laughed more. It was the eve of war, but they didn't know. 
The children walked. The children's parents walked. The parents' parents walked. Their shadows spilled ahead. Their shadows lagged behind. Then they began to run. No one was laughing. I don't know why I write these hard ass poems and then I can't like read them. <laughs> uh, but what can we do? The world is a complex place. So uh, this is Parable for Refugees. 17 common flies clustered hallway days. They no longer fly through the screen when ushered, weak, to, from, light, real, artificial. Did they forget the sun? Fly toward faces, some dead on a sill, some walk. Did they forget how to fly? Why don't they go? One paces on a step. Do they wait for a shoe? It averts them, goes, why die? Still, is it madness, the ones who wait? And I fear I may have sort of sped through this, <laughs> but the focus is on hope, I guess. I don't know. Sometimes I'm not that good at just like talking about things and storytelling, uh, but uh I this is the last poem and, and I'm reading it because Hope references it in um, her book, which I don't want to use foolish words to describe it, but it's such a serious book and a book that is so interested in life and in the possibilities of life and in resistance on all levels. Um, and there's nothing in it that is easy, really, but it's also so welcoming. Um, and so I, I really look forward to, in these seasons, um, people experiencing more of your work and this other facet um, of your book contained in a collection and the different conversations that you'll have and that people will have about your work. And and thank you for for all of the lovely voices that you reference in your book. I was genuinely startled <laughs> to find uh, my own in there. And um, I read this poem for you, which has its seriousness, but also its um, silliness. And I think that that's something, there are moments of humor, even where it's wry in, in your book. And I look forward to people sort of teasing that out. And part of maybe what you appreciated about this poem is that it has not exactly funny but if you're an awkward person who laughs at inappropriate times like myself you might laugh um reading or hearing this poem aloud um which i've noticed that young people are more free in that way um they just like laugh with 
their mouth open <laughs> sometimes when I read this. And so thank you all for being here. I'm so excited for y'all to hear Hope's poems and to hear her maybe contextualize some of them in her own voice and be in discussion with her after. This is um, Boat Journey. <sighs> Sunday afternoon on a city beach. No sand, slabs of manufactured stone. I watch two blondes, maybe sisters, inflate a raft. They use a bicycle pump. One tries to assemble two paddles, gives up, puts them in her bag. The one on the pump removes her top. She has exerted herself into better posture. Her breasts are larger than I expected. I want to see if their tiny raft will hold them. The clouds and current move north. As they enter the water, Tony Allen warns against the boat journey, running away from a misery, find yourself in a double misery. I recall photos of British tourists in Greece frowning at refugees, Greek children in gym class while hungry. In the direction the raft floats, the sisters paddling with their hands, planetarium. I wonder if it houses a telescope capable of seeing the double misery on a Greek island. Maybe its lens is too powerful. The side of their raft reads, Explorer. Their souls are black. If you pay attention to movies, white women have grimy souls. I have seen black actresses with exquisite feet. I recall my mother checking my socks in the exam room before the doctor entered. The sisters let their ponytails drag in dubious lake water. I'm not sure if I hear these lyrics. Even if they let you enter, they probably won't let you. Even if they let you enter, the Baron won't let you. The Baron won't let you. I note their appearances, take off point, just in case. I doubt any of our thoughts converge. What is it like to be so free? To drift in water in a country you call your own. Unprepared because you can laugh into an official's face. Explain. Offer no apology. Thank you. And congratulations, Hope. Please give it up for Latin Osman. Give it up for Safia Alio. Um, what a beautiful and incredible way to, again, salt the ground with just good, furtive joy, with humor, with insightfulness, with tenderness, with fierce tenderness. Um, it's an incredible feat. And I shouldn't have to say this, but clearly the expansiveness of Black women is just out of this world. So, you know, if you are 
even a, a, a TikTok lurker. We love black women from infinity to infinity. You'll get the reference, right? Yes. So now for the reason that we're all here. Now for the grand reason that we're all here. I also want to encourage in these events, obviously we want you to show love. Obviously we want you to be present. Obviously we want you to, um, again, be very rooted in that connectiveness. And part of that is if you have any questions, this is the perfect time to drop them in the chat. If you want to engage with hope, if you want to engage with Safia, if you want to engage with Lethen, this is the perfect time for you to be able to get that kind of connection. Um, and so drop those in the chat and we'll get them to the authors. Um, but without further ado, I am so excited. I am so excited. I've spent so much time with these incredible poems. It's a powerful book. I love what Lethen said about the humor, right? I feel like that is, you know, the technology of Blackness, the technology of Black women. I feel like that is the technology of, you know, all, all the five home bases on the continent and then us on this side of the pond in the six, right? Like that technology that we share is just incredible. And so I could not have asked to be in a better position to be of service, to be in support. Um, and I've seen these poems come through fruition. I've seen these poems go through their journey until what you get to hold in your hands, because I know that you clicked that link in the chat. I know that you already purchased that pre-order, right? I know you did, right? You did. Um, so I'm just so excited for you to finally hold this beautiful object in your hands. Um, and so thank you so much, Hope, for being with us, for entrusting um, Haymarket with your incredible book, with your incredible words. And I don't know if I can say thank you enough. Sometimes thank you feels insufficient. So, um, but yeah, please bless us with some of the incredible poems that are from this debut collection. Thank you, Erica, for that. You're so kind. Um, Erica is just such an incredible poet in your own right. You know, um, just this evening is more than I could ever have imagined, you know, even though we're all over and not together, um, just being able to share this evening and to be in sisterhood with Safia and Laden, two poets who I have held close um, in spirit for, for many, many years and just, just been, you know, so... Um, inspired and thankful for your words and your books. And I um, I teach them <laughs> at least once a year. And so I am very thankful that you were um, so kind as to um, be in sisterhood with me this evening. It's, you know, more than I could have imagined to share the, the launch of my book um, with two brilliant African poets, um, you know, what a world we're living in. Um, to be able to have your words. So thank you for being with me this evening. And thank you, Erica, again. And thank you, Haymarket. And thank you, all of you, all of you who are listening and have spent the evening with us. Um, thank you for that. Um, so, you know, Erica has <laughs> described what my book is about. So I'm not going to talk more about it. Um, I will say that I think that a lot of us have been thinking about, you know, what war does and what violence does in the past month. Um, and many of us have been thinking about that for a long time. But I know a lot of us have what's happening on Ukraine on our minds and um, what's happened um, to so many of the countries that we come from. 
um, in the past, you know, decades, kind of violence of war. And so this book is my attempt to kind of give an offering to um, that experience, especially the women and children who have um, survived that experience. Um, so this one being specifically about, um, you know, colonization and what happens in the violence when dictators try to take over after that. Um, when the British took over um, and colonized Uganda, as they did a lot of African countries, they kind of took the Bible hand in hand to kind of justify that colonization. And so as I tried to interrogate that violence, I used the Christian Bible as a scaffolding to kind and looking at different characters um, and images to interrogate the violence that's written on the body. Um, so um, two of the figures I kind of look at, one's Ruth, um, a kind of refugee girl who had to travel in various spaces. And um, um, I'll just leave it there. So um, this first poem is called, If Not David. Um, and I'm reading from my book, not the screen. So I'll try to make as best eye contact <laughs> as I can. Um, if not David, when the British came, they brought their guns and their Jesus. They took our oil and our diamonds. They sent our men to fight their wars in Europe, did not send their bodies home. Amin was 18. He learned his lesson well, kill the other, take what is his. When Amin and his cronies drove the British out, our country chaos, our votes ignored already. Amin's killings were called simply a natural byproduct of events. His buddy Aboti, the new president, promoted him, said, kill more. But later, when Amin's killings grew too much and his buddy Aboti said stop, Amin went after him too, took the throne and laughed. No one can run, he said, faster than a bullet. At times, so many dead bodies were thrown into the Nile River, the water stopped flowing. Hitler, I mean, was fond of saying, had the right idea. This poem is called Goliath. Names given, His Excellency Idi Amin, the butcher of Uganda, conqueror of the British Empire in Africa, and Uganda in particular. Field Marshal Al-Hajj, Doctor, Big Daddy, President for Life, Lord of All, the Beasts of the Sea and Fishes of the Earth. Weight, 250 pounds, height, 6'4". What his former British commander said, a splendid type, a good rugby player, and a reliable soldier, cheerful, energetic, and an incredible person who certainly isn't mad. First instance of torture, 1962 Turkana massacre, brewing a lie, beating to death, etc. Overlooked, promoted to head of armed forces, 1963. Awards, Distinguished Service Order, Victorious Cross, Military Cross, Doctor of Law. Seizes power, Backed by Israel and Great Britain, 1971. 
Number of wives, four. Mistresses, 30. Abused, 34. Number of soldiers employed in special death squads, 18,000. Number of villages wiped out, unknown. Kill count, 300,000 or one in 26 people. Special focus, educated Christians. Flees to Libya in 1979 after losing war with Tanzanian forces and Ugandan dissidents. Motto, in any country, there must be people who have to die. Um, this next poem is called Mouth. I have a few short poems and then two long poems at the end. So I hope you um, will bear with me. Um, this next poem is called Mouth. They pack nothing to escape detection. One change of clothes, no books, furniture, or photographs. Sewn into their clothes, my father's lab specimens, my mother's wedding ring. A day trip with our daughter, they will say at the border. We will be right back. This poem is called Breath. They never speak of the dead, the massacres at school. Friends and family disappeared. How they got word they were next. They're crossing to Kenya, then America. What happened in the after to the left? Um, this poem is called Job, Survivor's Guilt. And in the denial of the words, I know how, as latex-wrapped fingers press close to see inside, grandmother will press lips tight together. Grandmother will press sickness down, down deep, deep down, to push back the rising of Aunt's voice, throat cut, bled out by latex-gloved hands, back home in Amin's war, until the sound rings out in tiny brown bead shapes, rung round brown skin. And grandmother will press fingers soft to one, all, a silent Hail Mary, a silent grace. When I was a little girl, I spent a lot of time in Sunday school. Um, my parents had, um, when the British came to Uganda, you know, they brought the religion and the idea that if you're anything that was to do with being, you know, indigenous Ugandan person was not good. And so you, they kind of, um, you know, believe that colonizers mentality. And sometimes I think that that's the worst damage the colonizer does is to make the people, the indigenous people believe that everything they have is no value, has no value and to only value, um, the colonizers, um, um, what the colonizer brings. And so anyway, um, I spent a lot of time in Sunday school um, and the, the image, there were so many things that I was trying to wrap my hand around as a little girl, you know, um, Isaac being brought by his father, Abraham, who was told to kill him by God and, and, and so many, you know, various women who were, you know, sold into prostitution by their fathers and so forth. Um, and, but the idea, um, the image of 
Daniel in the Lion's Den, I think, was something that was also like resonated with me. The idea that, you know, he was thrown into the fire for disobeying some a king's order and God sent angels to um to protect them. And then when the um when their version of colonizers looked into the fire, they saw Daniel protected by these three winged angels. And my parents, as you know, having survived this genocide, survived this dictator, that was very real to them. They had been in places where, you know, for them, they felt that it, you know, God had saved them from, you know, instant away from violence. And so, you know, those two images coalesced in my mind and led to this poem. It's called, And After the War, They Still Dream of Things Like Angels That Shield Men From the Firing. It is only the lack of heat, the lack of singed skin and air ash to fill the nostrils in the coolness of the dewed morning air below the unfurled sounding of their winged rhythm rippling the air unfired that is remembered. This, the stuff of miracles that dreams are made of. We never talk of how now they run from flame, how they cannot cook dinner, how they cannot see any color but red. Eyes stinging memory closed, the inferno still blazes. And they hear the cackling sizzle, and they think they see their skin blackening, pulled from their bones like a chicken on a spit crisp from the firing. In these night sweats and shivered terrors, these fever dreams, constant and inflamed, in this still, loudening echo. Part of the inheritance, I think, when you have family that leaves a place because they did not want to, but because they had to, because of violence, is sometimes silence, sometimes absence, as what you are wanting to know about yourself, your culture, your family history, is perhaps painful to be spoken by those who know because of what they had to go through to leave. And so some of the poems in my book, I'm imagining what I was never allowed to know in my questions because my questions caused too much pain to be answered. Just wanting to know um, things about who you are and where you come from. And so this poem is um, kind of an imagined conversation with um, my grandmother um, called Naomi After the War. When your grandchildren listen, your mouth is alien. Foreign waters lapping at a foreign shore. We have only the language of the conquerors within just one small island. Kuhu, Kuhu, your name repeated becomes a song. Um, so this poem I wrote, and I think it's an experience that um, a good many children of immigrants may have, where your parents had to go through so much to get here and then um, they have a lot of expectations on you. Um, but also there's a um, wide morass of understanding because um, they want you to be successful in the new country and to be successful, that almost seems that you don't understand each other. Um, and there's a wide expanse of understanding. 
Um, so this poem is called Judges. He tells them, his American children, how when he was their age, he had to walk two miles uphill to school after hunting the meat they would eat that day, after fetching the water they would use that day, after working the fields long hours before the sun had even risen. Then, after staying late to finish homework, otherwise there would not be enough light, chalk, or slate, he would walk those two miles back home to hunt, fetch water, plant, dig, or harvest, some more, whatever needed to be done, because it was not working, not just working twice as hard to succeed as these, his American black children get to do, but five times, 10 times, 100 times, whatever it took. There were hundreds of them and only one mission, one school, one classroom, one chance to be the best and impress the Western missionaries and get sponsored and get out and become something. But they do not understand, his American children, how there was no second chance. If his trap sprung empty of prey, they would not eat that night. It was winner take all. And he took, even if there would be nothing left behind. You never looked back, only forward, moved forward. To succeed, competition was the only thing. And winning was everything. But still, his American children say, why does everything have to be a competition? Why do you have to be so hard? And he wonders how they can want him softer when there is no room for softness. Can they not see such a thing was death where he comes from? If he did not make himself so hard, he would not have pushed past them for that one chance to win escape. And he did escape. But they, his American children, all they say is, can you not just love us? Can you not just take us back to Uganda to visit so we can know ourselves, learn who we are, and how to love ourselves? Love. Had he not taken them out of a means genocide, out of love, and given them running water, free speech, the right to vote, a democracy, and playing field that had seemed level, all 100% guaranteed by life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when back in Uganda, three of five of them would be dead already from war, disease, or famine. Dear God, had he not done enough, had he not been enough, had he not tried his best, had he not brought them here to safety, had he not survived, were they not all still alive? This is a different poem about my father, um, thinking about how his parents age and die, um, and you want them to take care of themselves, and it's difficult to get them to. This poem is called Leviticus. At work still, when the day rises again, Sunlight dipping into your hollowed ribs. You are not eating. Gray-haired man, my teacher, my dark mirror of what I want and do not want to become. How I have watched you want me different. Genetics will win. You are a scientist. You have told me. Morning last, I found you at your work, house so dust-coated I could not breathe, the deer eating your overgrown grass. What does this make us, your children, when your work is the only thing, when you cannot hear the words we hurl against the shuttered window that is your life? Please, take care of yourself. That day we found you in the street, fallen unconscious, eyes butted shut, nose so broken you could not breathe, and you would not get help. How you said, if I am going to die from this, 
I would already be dead. The door to your office closed behind you, and we could hear the chirp of your computer, more alive than the drone of our voices, asking you to try. This poem um, I wrote um, after Trayvon Martin um, was killed. It's called Figure Four, Pieta. Black body as crucifix patterned with a field of skittles crossed with seven up against a blood red sky. Materials, white concrete and lead. When I was a little girl, you and I were the best of friends, dear father, as I followed you down the long test tube flanked aisles of your laboratory funded by the same people who had enslaved your ancestors and bankrupted your country and would deny them the medicines you were discovering, still following you in stores, still sending cops to watch our house because those N-words have been up to no good since they moved to our town. I wanted to know why and wrote down everything you said as truth until I began to think for myself and you couldn't have that. So you began to beat at me like a housewife does a stain as if that would get the education out. The doctors have said you will spend this year dying, and I want to tell you so many things. But yesterday, they let free that white man who killed the brown boy just because he was brown. And the day before that, they took away the protections for our right to vote. And the day before that, they released a study saying the radiation has already... from the nuclear disaster exploded in Japan has already jumped in the water, swum across the ocean, up through our faucets, our hoses, into our earths, plants and animals, our bodies now dying, infected already. And there is not enough medicine for everyone. And you know who there will not be enough for. This morning, I had to stop while doing my yoga and curl into a ball, hold myself to keep from shaking. All day long, I felt terrified. Little spasms on my spine and central nerve system as I remember taking my seven-month-old son for our daily walk because he loves outside, outside. And I love him, walking with him, pressed against my body, still feeling my bones realigning, muscles unwinding from giving birth to him, carrying him. And the old white man who lives in the house on the corner yells, he will shoot us like that other white man shot the little brown boy just because we are brown too. And all I can think to do is just breathe, breathe. There are other people's small horrors too. A friend who was trying to get pregnant, another miscarriage, says it feels like meeting a ghost without ever having met the person before. And I just want you, my father, to protect me Teach me how to protect my son, because they have put in a law that says the last man standing can say, I felt threatened, and shoot to kill, and then walk free. And they always say they are threatened of us. And they have taken away that other law that says they cannot step in front of our path to the voting house and stop us. And they have never stopped trying to stop us.
And I wonder what is to stop them from firing, knowing their whiteness is their ticket to not guilty, to be set free of, having the rage of, having a man who looks like you in their white house again. So I have just um, two more poems, one a little longish and one very short. Um, I was really interested in the idea, the figure of Ruth, um, this girl who um, was a refugee and traveled with her mother and um, it haunted me as I, as I wrote this text, as I was trying to bring together all these ideas of personal history uh, through a genocide and colonialism and, um, and trying to gain an, a, a, trying to push through that to own and center a sense of self and selfhood and, and spirituality. Um, so this poem is figure one, portrait of Ruth, understanding what became of Eve in the garden as her own body, as war. How you still need to believe it was for the love and not its opposite. For to love is to hold your heart outside your body and inside another. The red echo pulsing through your marrow to sound what cannot be heard. You pulled through the bones by his desire. Your clay self molded into the fitted shape of his desires. This is how we make the things our children inherit. How that first night the man returns, clutching his weapons baptized in the bones and the blood of the animals, whose care you are tasked with. And the man holds you down and he and you stay because you were made to honor and obey. And you both know the man will do it again. And he does. And you stay. And the one in your belly you do not yet know exists is already learning. There are only two choices predator and prey. You see red, see nothing, swollen. His eyes sweat dripped into your slitted eyes. Hold onto the sting of his salt against your skin and know we will be legion. In the iterations of the becoming through your belly, we are the belly of the belly, repeated, infinite, formed in the vast blackness of space, womb bones stuttered into being like stars. Night always, his arrival, pulse racing, run. In the wanting to be safe was believing the first man who said his body would stand between the world and yours, like your God promised when gifting you. Left anyway to stand alone and evicted, body swelled with child. And you would have understood his curse was not in the pain of birth, but for us, the afterward lying with another and the next, it would be the singular weight, this rib of unborn promise now shattered to bear the ripping apart of the act of creation alone, as what is written inside the body cannot be denied. And perhaps the anger was not in the failed test of the apple, but that in giving you the act of creation, you are made his equal, not the man. But how in the breaking, everything you gave will be used against you. But why would love set up love to fail? 
And if there is no memory of before violence was learned as love, there is only the sounding of how, long before this growing is a wish inside your body, there will be no warning to know how others, much later, will seek out this cracking sounding of the fault lines in our bones with the careful deliberation of the storm wind moving across not just the waters, sand, or mud, but the hardest, deepest rock to shatter further and destroy. This is my last poem. Thank you all for being here. And thank you again, Erica, Ladan, Safia. It truly is a pleasure to be sharing this evening with you. Um, let me find it. And this poem is in the section which has the epigraph from Laden. Um, what it is like, what it is, what is it like to be so free? Um, figure 11, self-portrait as fire in ocean, materials, water. A year after the last time he has come back and I have left him, his markings on my body deepened from darkened bruise to pressed within nerve, tendon, and bone. I meet a friend for dinner, pulled one by one from the oyster mouth of her unclasped red handbag. She gives me lemons, yellow pearls raw in the press of becoming. And I understand how the first creation was not of clay and newborn pink flesh, but out of black water and fire-ashed embers ended that single red-risen flame. Um, number one, all of these poems were incredible. All of these poems were fire. Number two, I don't know if y'all fully apprehend the gift. Oops, sorry. The gift that we were just given being able to hear, um, Hope's poems, Lethen's poems, Safia's poems. Um, again, I'm going to keep talking about interconnectedness and intention in connecting to one another. It's so incredibly important in these times. Hope, again, thank you, um, for blessing us with this powerful and incredible collection of poetry. I can't wait to see how this book continues to fly through the world. Um, um, and surprisingly so, but not surprisingly so, only surprising in that in the poetry, cultural sort of um, programs, we don't often get a lot of questions, but we do have three. And so um, folks are feeling led. If you have the bandwidth, I would love um, to go ahead and pose those questions to you. And the first one, especially um, because often, especially when we're, you know, in this space as poets, as literary citizens in a number of iterations in the work that we do, some of us are, you know, intersected in different genres. Um, and folks always want to know how we got our origin wings, how we got our origin stories, right? And so one of the questions from the chat is from Stuart, who said, says, um, particularly for Hope, but obviously equally for Safia and Lethen, how did you discover poetry and yourselves as poets? Yes, Hope, I think you're muted. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
Um, I guess I, you know, I just always love reading. Um, I think, as I mentioned before, I grew up in a very Christian family and um, we would have to spend all day at church and Sundays were Bible studies and, um, you know, everybody was there because of the religion. And I just thought they were really beautiful poems (laughs) that were being read. Um, So I think that was my first exposure as, as a child. And I just always wanted to write poetry, but didn't um, really understand that was a, something that I could do with my life um, and, you know, wrote essays and other things for a long time. Um, and with this book, especially, you know, even though I studied, you know, creative writing. And I, so I guess, you know, there's that background of, of, of that. Um, I feel, you know, very, um, like a little bit like, you know, when I say that I wrote this book, I feel like it was a gift, you know, that I was, um, it was a story that needed to be said and that I was open to hearing it. Um, you know, I was having a lot of dreams around 10 years ago and, and just kind of, of, of this period in my family's history. And I would call up my mother and she would say, oh, well, I never told you that. And so just kind of being open to having the ancestors um, speak to you and trying to find a way to put that through music and form, um, you know, but, but, you know, like so much of this, I feel like didn't come from me, but was kind of, you know, hearing the stories that needed to be told and finding a way to put that into a, a poetic form. So, you know, I think just, you know, yeah. I love that. And I'm not sure if, um, you know, Lothan or Safia want to impart that as well. Um, obviously, no pressure. I know we are feeling the um, energetic effects <laughs> of the time. So, but um, please feel free to, um, you know, respond if you feel led. Perfect. All right. The second question is from Rachel King, who says, I wonder for Hope, but also for Safi and Lethen, who is your ideal audience and or do you write for anyone? If so, who or does it depend on the poem? And I'm re- I'm really curious to hear what Safia and Lethen have to say to this. Um, you know, I think that question operates on so many levels you know you're writing you know first and foremost you know you're not trying to think about anybody who's reading it but you're trying to to let the poem that needs to be written be written um but you know i think that so much of the time there is that idea that that tony morrison says that you want to you know write the book that you always wanted to write but couldn't find and so many years growing up i wanted to read stories about you know, African women about, you know, this experience. And it wasn't there. It wasn't there. And, you, you know, you found glimpses in James Baldwin and Tony and, and you know, Nikki and, and, and all these wonderful plethora of African and African-American diasporic poets. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's it. You try to tell the story that needs to be told, the poem that needs to be written, and um, hope that in its specificity, it speaks to the universality of the human experience. Um, I will usually, it helps me to write to someone when I'm making a poem. Um, and so generally, like, it's one or two people who are the intended audience, but my hope um, is for 
my poems to read in general, like um, you're like eavesdropping on a really interesting conversation where you might not super get everything that's happening, but you still kind of want to know what you can get from it is my hope. Uh, <laughs> these are great answers. Um, I know that we're sort of trained to, but I don't know that I consider audience too much. Sometimes I think about the atmosphere of the poem and what it is that it requires, which sometimes, you know, that will do a lot of work with the sound and the narrative. So if there's a parable building, it's like, well, what, what needs to, to happen here so that there's some resonance. Um, and so that's maybe, uh, I, my, goal is for it to be kind of a flexible understanding of sound and of story. But I mean, I think sometimes there are very specific poems um, that are for particular people, especially if there's, and it's, you know, mostly women that are like, I have this story or I want to tell you this thing, or they, someone just feeds you an image. Like in the first poem that I wrote, uh, that I read tonight, I was thinking of this elder that I was doing some kind of like work. I don't know. I'm sure I was learning something as volunteering or something. And he was talking about sharecropping and how one of the agonies of that was, and he wasn't that old. So it was just like a very jarring conversation to have as a teenager. And he just was like, one of the agonies of, of this labor was that you're surrounded by the beauty of nature and you have grass and other things touching you and you just endlessly want to escape and to leave the task that you're doing. And so sometimes, you know, that's an exchange. Somebody will just be like, you need to write about this thing. It's like, okay, well, that's a lot of pressure, but you know, then there's the pleasure of that poem that maybe resonates with other people that it's for this specific person who doesn't want to be named or referenced, but you can go back to them and be like, I, I made this for you. The thing that you asked me to do, it took me a couple of years, but I did it. Um, and that's probably the closest I get. Cause I think sometimes this question is like a marketing question or something. It feels a little bit more, it's like not hundred percent my business. And in, in all cases, some cases it is other cases. It's more like, for somebody else to frame, probably. Thank y'all so much for responding um, to that question. I think it's really interesting, the doorways that we walk through, um, some of those questions and some of the lenses that we have to both, in an interior sense, recognize in ourselves. Um, and then, you know, just bearing witness. We talk about bearing witness all the time, but literally we're doing that every day, every single second that we're interacting in the world in some way. And so it's incredibly generous from all of you. Thank you. And the very last question, um, and I hope that I say your name correctly, Chan Tara ba Ballard, um, ask the following, and then we'll go ahead and hopefully get some dinner, get some respite, um, get some tenderness, um, because we have been able to walk away with these incredible, incredible gifts. But um, so a question for Hope. And obviously also Safia and Levin, of course. <laughs> um, how do you write through the difficulty of entering and exiting a poem grounded in familial inheritance? I'm going to leave that to y'all. <laughs> Hi, Sean and Tara. Um, these are two of my brilliant students in um, the graduate program, PhD program here at UNL, um, who have sat with both Ladens and, and Safia's work. 
Um, oh, I, I think, you know, just to give the, the simplest and most honest answer I can to this question, otherwise it would kind of echo for, for larger than it should, um, which is just, you know, complete honesty and vulnerability and compassion. You know, there is a fear with that, but just the hope that if you are being true and having compassion and trying to show a truth, which is outside of any ego or agenda, but really trying to sit with and imagine, you know, whether somebody else's perspective, um, but yeah, just, uh, uh, you know, a complete suppression of any kind of ego or agenda and just a really, um, desire to inhabit and to apprehend truth and, um, and honesty is what I would say to that. I love that. I wasn't sure if Safia or Lethan wanted to chime in on that as well. Um, so I'll give you the space to do so. But if not, I think that we can continue on our very human and our very lovely journey. I want to thank, 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 thank Safia Elhio and Lethan Osman for joining us in the celebration of Hope Wabuki's book. Again, if you have not had yet the chance to order the book, you're tripping. Go ahead and get on the link right now. Um, I understand sometimes we've got to wait to payday. So like, you know, go ahead, take care of your electric, take care of your groceries, take care of your grandmama and your mama, and then go ahead and get this book. Maybe buy one for yourself, maybe buy one for you and all your friends. Um, and also share the word. Remember, if you are in the chat, if you come across this video, even in the archive, we keep these programs up on Haymarket's channel um, because we believe in having a record to revisit, especially when you need to return and be nourished. Like the video, share the video, share the order link with your friends and make sure that we're all, you know, being in community in the ways, in the best ways that we can show up. Um, so thank y'all so much for being here. Thank you for being so generous and attentive to these incredible, incredible writers. And thank these incredible writers for being attentive to one another and for allowing us to sort of bask in this space. So appreciate y'all. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.